0: Last week, we launched this new teaching series uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you have not had a chance to listen through our podcast or watch online at YouTube um, that message from last week, I'd encourage you to do so because there's no way that I can recap for you all the reasons why we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah or the history that we walked through last week. I'll give you a short version. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, tells the story of exiles who are returning from Uh, Babylon, Uh, God's people, God's chosen people, the um, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Uh, They were meant to be people who honored God, who looked to him, who followed him, who helped the world experience him. And they lost sight of who he was. They lost sight of his plan for their life. And because of that, um, they were taken off into captivity, into exile, into Babylon, And they spent 70 years there. 70 years of heartbreak, 70 years of hardship, 70 years of difficulty and uncertainty. And after those 70 years, uh, God brought them back um, under the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's an incredible comeback story of people returning from difficulty and exile caused by their sin or the sins of others and they're brought back and it's the story of God kind of reestablishing them and them finding their sense of identity and purpose. Uh, Our series is titled Rise from the Ashes because quite literally it's a story of the people rising from the ashes, the city of Jerusalem being restored from ash. We learn that in 586 BC, this story is told in Second Kings, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, destroyed the temple. He destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. He burned it down. So it was a city lying in ruins, lying in ashes. And the people come back and they begin rebuilding it. And the, the life of God's people is restored from the ashes. And we want to see that as a metaphor for our own lives. What lessons can we learn from what God did in the life of his people 2,500 years ago that can help us rise from the ashes, that can help us in our own comeback stories. Something we have to remember as we come to the word of God is that although the words were inspired and recorded generations ago, uh, they're inspired by a spirit Uh, The spirit of God who is purposeful and powerful and timeless and unchanging and God's character doesn't change. And so the lessons we learn here are lessons that we can carry with us uh, even today and can help us as we strive to honor him and to obey him just as these very people were trying to do. So, today, the lessons we want to learn come from two construction projects of all things in the life of God's people. If you look at Ezra and you look at Nehemiah, both of them in the first six chapters or so tell the story of a construction project. Ezra tells the story of the temple being rebuilt, Nehemiah tells the story of the wall and the gates around Jerusalem where the temple is. He tells the story of those being rebuilt. And within these construction projects, believe it or not, we can learn a lesson for us as we attempt to make a comeback from our own exile. Because at the core, these construction projects were not about what was being built, per se. They were about what those things represented. And the temple and the wall, both at their core, had far more to do with Israel's identity and their purpose than they did a building or a wall, that the temple was this place where the people could see who God was and who they were and how they were to live. And the wall was there to protect that. And so we want to explore those themes this morning and and maybe find lessons for our own identity and purpose. Uh, You likely know by this point in your life That what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about our place in this world, what we believe about who God is and how he made us, these questions of identity, these questions of purpose, they shape so much of our experience in life. Um, What you believe about God, who you believe you are within his story and how you believe you are to live affects how you respond in in every situation. And, And these construction projects will give us the opportunity to look our own sense of identity and purpose. There's a story that I've told you before and I will tell it again. I try not to tell the same stories again and again, but this one I love enough and I don't think it's, it can be wasted. Um, I tell it nearly at every funeral as well. It's a story of a German preacher. His name, Christian Rager. Uh, Christian was preaching in Berlin in world, right before World War II. When Adolf Hitler uh, came into leadership in Germany, Uh, He issued a number of decrees and laws that we know were harmful to people in Germany. And one of those was that he wanted to dictate what was taught from platforms in their churches. And so he said some things in the Gospels and some things in the Word of God could be taught and some things couldn't. And Christian Rager said, listen, I am not Adolf Hitler's spokesman, I am a preacher. I preach the Word of God and so I will continue to preach the Word of God no matter what. And In the sad story, his organist at his church turns him in, uh, of all the people that would turn him in for not obeying. He was sentenced to the concentration camp that we know as Dachau. Uh, If you read history, you know that next to Auschwitz, Dachau was considered one of the most horrific of the concentration camps, if we can even rank them, I don't know, but it was a horrible place to be. And it led to a crisis of faith for Christian. In fact, he would write, uh, following the war, he survived, he was released, And he would write of his experience and he would talk about how he nearly lost all faith. He nearly turned from God. Even as a preacher, nearly abandoned following God. And through a series of circumstances that I don't have time to share, he began to see that God must have still been with him. And he writes of his experience at Dachau at the end of his life. And this is what he writes. He says, a philosopher once said that man can undergo torture if he knows the why of his life. In that moment, Rager is quoting um, Nietzsche, the famous philosopher. He says, A famous philosopher once said that man can undergo torture if he knows the why of his life, but here at Dachau, I learned something greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then, thinking about the concentration camp, and he's enough to sustain me still. So here is a man who endured one of the greatest horrors our world has known, and he says what enabled him to do so was knowing the who of his life. It was understanding his identity, who he was, who God was, what God had to say about who he was and how he was to live, and that helped him And what is an incredible comeback story, you think about people being in a concentration camp, sentenced to die, and then God using them for something more. That's a comeback story. The concentration camp is an exile of all exiles, and here it is knowing who God was and what God said about him and how he was to live helped him endure. Imagine what it can do for you and me. And that's the very thing we see unfold in Ezra and Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, find Ezra. We're gonna hang out in Ezra first, and then we'll go to Nehemiah towards the end of the message. The first passage we'll look at is in Ezra chapter two, but before we get there, you have plenty of time, i uh, give you some backstory. Last week when we left Ezra, we saw that King Cyrus had issued a decree uh, one of his policies was to allow people to go back and resettle the areas that they had been taken captive from. Persia had conquered Babylon, and so Cyrus says, "Hey uh, i 'll let you go back and reestablish yourselves." It was a, a great way to build favor with the people. And so the people begin returning. the first wave of exiles returns from what was Babylon, now's Persia, to the land where Jerusalem is. And as they begin to gather there, they set about to rebuild the temple. But why was the temple so significant? Why was the temple, the temple that was destroyed in 586 BC, why would it have been a priority to the people to restore in the first place? And for that, we have to rewind even further. In fact, we need to go back to the very beginning, the very beginning of the story of humanity and humankind. When God creates humankind, we know from Genesis chapter two that he makes us in his image. There is something special and unique about humankind that the rest of creation doesn't have. God desires a relationship with humankind. And God still desires a relationship with humankind. God desires a relationship with you and me. God desired this intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. And he actually allowed this beautiful scene in Genesis 2. It's only a, a, you know several, several verses long, but it's not, it's not a huge story. But we see Adam and Eve living with God in the Garden of Eden. Like the creator of all the universe allows humankind to walk with him and talk with him and, and, and just experience him. And, and he gives them two commandments, right? Uh, or one main command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from it and you will die. Um, and there's another tree in the garden, uh, the tree of life. And if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they'll be cut off from the tree of life. And we see later as Genesis 3 begins that the serpent the enemy comes and he tempts Adam and Eve and they choose to sell out who they are as God's children and what he has to say about them and how he wants them to live for the enemy's lies. And they're cut off from the God who loves them and made them and wants this intimate relationship with them. And we know because the story continues that God is working this incredible rescue plan and God will eventually make himself accessible to people in a personal way again, Um, but that didn't happen until Jesus. And so you have these human beings made in God's image. God desires a relationship with them, but because of their sin, their rebellion, their disobedience, their their willingness to live apart or opposed to what God wants, um, they can't experience the intimacy of his presence. But God is working, and we see later in Genesis that he calls a man named Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham. And he blesses him and he says, uh, Abram, I am going to bless you and I'm going to bless your offspring. In fact, I'm gonna bless the whole world, all the nations of the earth through you. That's Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. So we see God still saying, this is who I am. This is what I say about you. And this is what you're gonna do. These are ideas of identity and purpose. And so Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. You may recall that story. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, have Jacob and Esau, two twin boys. Jacob takes his brother's birthright and and receives the blessing from God. And so uh, Jacob begins having children through different wives, Rachel, Leah, others. And we end up with the 12 tribes of Israel. And so God's people are slowly being born. This people, for whatever reason, that he chose to say, I am going to bring this blessing to the world through them. Ultimately, Long-term, that's Jesus, okay? But these people are growing. The people end up in Egypt during a famine. They're enslaved in Egypt. Then they're brought out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And on their way through the desert, God comes to Moses. He gives him commandments. And among the things he tells Moses to do uh, is he wants him to build him a place where he will dwell. Exodus 25, he says, I want you to build a tabernacle where where I will come and I will dwell among you. And that's huge because again, since Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned and they've been cut off, generations have lived and God has not dwelt among his people. And here he's saying, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to live among you so that you know who I am and you know who you are and you know how to live. And so the tabernacle is built and there's God living among them. And the story of Israel continues. They go through the period of the judges and they come into the period of the kings and, and, and God still lives from time to time in these temporary dwelling places. And David, who comes to the throne, second king of Israel, uh, kind of has this, this time of thinking and he's like, how is it that I live in this beautiful palace in Jerusalem? Yet the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwells between the cherubim, uh, he, he just lives in a fragile, a fragile home. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna build him an incredible temple. And God says, you know what, David? That's a great, great idea. But because of your sin, you don't get to do that. Your son's gonna to get to do it. And so we can fast forward to 1 Kings chapter six and we can see Solomon and we can see him begin to build this beautiful temple for God, this place where God will dwell, that famous place with the, the Holy of Holies and the courts and, and, and all this. It's built for God. Why? So we can dwell among his people so they can know who he is, who they are, and how to live, but what happens for the people? We know their story. They disobey, they ignore who God is, they ignore what he says about them, and they ignore then how to live, and sin overtakes the people, and that's how they end up in captivity. That's how they end up in exile. That temple is destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. The story is told in 2 Kings. It's burned to the ground. The walls, the gates of Jerusalem are burned. And so here's this place that would hold this sense of identity and purpose for God's people, and it's gone. The people have lost their sense of identity and purpose. But now under the reign of Cyrus, they have the chance to come back. And what's one of the first things they do? They wanna start rebuilding the temple. Why? Because it tells them, who God is, and who they are, and how to live. And so that's what begins unfolding in Ezra chapter two. I pick up in verse 68, um, this first wave of exiles under Shesh Bazar, wonderful name, have returned as many as 50,000, maybe more. Um, historians uh, don't have a, that number dialed in completely. Come back to Jerusalem and look at what happens in chapter 2, verse 68. It says, When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. So the people return and they just start giving offerings to make sure that the temple is built. That may not seem significant to you, but I want to linger in the first few words of verse 68 for a minute. It says, When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So they arrive at the ruins of the old temple. They arrive at the house of the Lord. They they arrive to the footprint of where this glorious temple that held God's presence once stood. And we know that within the group, there are are people that span multiple generations. At the end of chapter three, we see that there were some old Levites who saw the former temple and they weeped because this new temple isn't as big or magnificent in its size as the old one. So there are people in this group who have seen the old temple. They saw it before it was raised to ruins. Imagine what they felt, uh, their sandals and their feet kicking up the dust of the ruins. There are people who'd heard stories. They've heard stories from their grandparents. They've heard stories from their parents. They've heard stories from their siblings, their aunts, and their uncles about how great the temple used to be and how, how God used to dwell among his people. And, and yet all they've known in their short lives is the difficulty, the difficulty of exile and the difficulty of hardship. And yet here they are standing in this place that once represented not only the greatness of God, but what he had to say about them and and how they were to live. I can imagine there was just this slew of emotions that overtook them, probably regret and nostalgia, joy, and maybe they were even inspired. Some of you in this room have had the chance to go to Israel and stand in places that Jesus stood and to see the ruins of buildings that date back to the stories we read in scripture, and you know what it's like to just take it in and. Wow, this, this, this wave of just powerful emotion washes over. Um, I hope to be able to do that someday. I haven't yet. Uh, we have a friend who's been to Egypt and Israel, and uh, I remember her sending us pictures of standing on one of the mountains that Moses would have stood on and just taking that in. And just imagine being these people coming back to the ruins of the temple and they're just taking it in. And it's such a powerful moment. It says that they just start giving. Like we got to get this temple, but we have to have this place. Again, why? Because it reminds them of who God is and what he has to say about them and the type of people they are to be. It's about identity and it's about purpose. So they begin contributing, they get the stuff they need to begin rebuilding, and we see the first thing they rebuild in chapter three, verses one through three. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, again, the people are coming back and resettling an area where other people have kind of taken over. So despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. That may not sound significant or substantial to you. They could have started with building anything. And here the people begin with the altar, The altar, this place where they would humbly have to bring things that cost them something, this reminder that God, you are so much greater than us. God, you are so much more deserving than us. And so they built the place of sacrifice to remind them first and foremost of who God is. He is great, he's deserving of our best, he's deserving of all that we have. Because they knew that that shaped what they felt about themselves and how they were to live. I think it's interesting that in verse three, it says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, it's amazing that even though they knew that those that they were surrounded by were hostile towards them, that God was bigger and they would pursue him no matter what. And then the pages turn and they begin building the foundation of the temple and you find that unfold in verses seven through, um, I believe it's 13, 13. Verse 13. Uh, they get to the end, the foundations of the temple are built and there's both weeping and joy. It tells us that people rejoice, they sing famous words of David, um, the Lord's love endures forever, uh, but in some of them weep. These people that had seen the former temple are like, wow, I mean, this is good, God's doing a new thing, but I sure, I sure missed what it used to be like. And so there's this mix of weeping and joy. And you would think the next thing we read would be that this temple, again, this place to remind them of who God was and who they were and how they were to live, that it would be finished. But we don't read about the finishing of the temple until Ezra chapter 6. Ezra 6 verse 15 tells us when the temple was finished. So what happens in chapters 4 uh, through chapter 6 verse 12? Well, as they finish the foundation, it tells us that those people that were living in the land opposed them actively. They faced tremendous opposition that actually caused the building project to come to a complete stop. So the foundation is laid for the temple and the, the opposition won't allow them to do any more. And so, again, this place that would remind them of who God was and who they were and how they were to live, this place of identity and purpose kind of comes to a hold. Now, if you read chapters 4 through chapter 6, verse 12, straight through, uh, you will probably end up, like me, really confused. Because in chapter 4, we read about the initial opposition to the temple. And then it turns to talking about opposition under Xerxes and Artaxerxes. And then there's talk of uh, opposition during the reign of Darius. Well, the kings of, of Persia are Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, so now we're bouncing back and forth between kings, when's the temple being built? And it all seems really confusing until we think about it like this. How many of you have ever gone to dinner with a friend and the friend starts to tell you a story from their life? And maybe it's a story of hardship, they're telling you about something difficult they're going through, and as they start to tell that story, they pause the story they're telling you about what's happening right now, and they tell you about something similar that happened that was brought to mind. And that reminds them of something else that happened, which reminds them of something else that happened. And before you know it, you've started this story, but you've heard all these other stories that are very similar, and then you get back to the real story, right? Anybody ever been there? I've been there, I've told stories like that, like it just prompts my mind to something else. Well. Whoever's writing Ezra, which we assume to be Ezra, as he reflects back on this period in their history, wants to share about the opposition to rebuilding the temple. That's significant. But as he's sharing that story of opposition, what's brought to mind are all these other oppositions that people faced in these hundred years of them resettling the land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall. And so once he kind of recounts those and gets his little um, like you know squirrel moment out on paper for us, he. He comes back to the temple being finished and that's where we have those words in Ezra 6 verse 15. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. I showed you a chart last week with a timeline in Old Testament history and world history on it. If you count down from 538, 537 BC when the temple project would have started to the sixth year of King Darius, you realize that the opposition lasted some 20 years plus years so here are the people wanting to restore this place that would remind them of their identity who god was the greatness of who he was i mean they were making sacrifices who they are what god would require of them and and how they were to live this, this all these identity and purpose things wrapped up in the temple and that was delayed for 21 years and yet they persevered to be able to finish it and there's an incredible celebration What on earth does that story of the temple, this, this, this source of identity for them and purpose for them, have to do with us? Well, on the surface, it may feel like nothing. We, we, we don't live in uh, 521 BC. Uh, we weren't exiles in Babylon. But if you move below the surface, you see it has everything to do with us. Because we are a people, just like human beings then, that wrestle with these issues of identity. Who are we? And that's shaped by who we believe God to be. How how are we to live? The the very thing that was central to their source of identity should provoke us to consider, where is our our identity at? What's our identity found in? Who is God and what does that mean for who I am and and what does that have to say about my place in this world and how I'm going to live? This idea of identity and purpose matters to us too. And it matters even more when I hopefully help you see that there still is a temple that matters to God. And it's not a temple that's made with human hands. See, the temple that was built in 521 BC and finished, it was destroyed around 70 AD, we know that from history. The temple that was built in 521 is the same temple that, that Jesus would have walked the steps of, the same courts he would have flipped over, uh, the, the tables of money changers in, and that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Yet I'm telling you, there's still another temple. Actually, there were two temples, but neither one of them were built by human hands, The first temple that was created before the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is Jesus Christ. Look at John. John chapter 1. As John begins his gospel, again, John reflecting at the end of his life, looking back, the significance of who Jesus is. He has this great way of just distilling for us the, the essential things about who Jesus is so we might follow him. He tells us in John 1.14 this, that the Word became flesh and made his what among us. He made his dwelling among us. God came to live among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There was a new temple. And that temple wasn't built by human hands. It was God coming not to dwell in a place of stone or a place of wood or under a tent, but God coming to dwell in Jesus. At the heart of the incarnation, God coming in flesh is that God's coming to dwell among his people. And guess what he does as he comes in Jesus. He tells us very clearly who he is. He's the God who made us. He's the God who loves us. He's the God who saves us. He tells us who we are. We are people in need of a savior. We are people who are broken. We are people broken by sin, who turn from him, just like Adam and Eve. And he shows us how to live. What does Jesus do? He invites people to follow him. So we see, even in the temple, Jesus, the body of Jesus, the life of Jesus, these issues of identity and purpose, who God is, who we are, and how we're to live. If you don't believe me that Jesus was a form of temple, look at Jesus' own words in John chapter two. After we hear that God made his dwelling among us in Jesus, Jesus is responding to some Jews who wanna know about his authority, and he says this in John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And then we read as John reflects, and he tells us that that temple that he spoke of was his body, And it all made sense uh, once Jesus returned from the dead that Jesus was a temple. Jesus was a place to know our identity, who God is. He's a God who loves us. He's a God who desires a relationship with us. He's a God who comes to save us who we are, we are people in need of a savior. Every single person in this room, every single person who lives and breathes in history of humanity and the history to be made in the future are men and women and children in need of God's saving grace, because we are broken. We will choose our selfish ways, we will disobey him, we will think that we are smarter than him, we will follow the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and say, you know what, we know better than God and we will screw up our lives again and again and again and again and Jesus knows that about us and so he came to give us a better way. He gives us our identity and he gives us our purpose. But that's not even the end of the story because that that temple is kind of made anew again. There's a second temple that's spoken of in the New Testament. Jesus gives birth to it. That second temple is us. Every person, young and old, who turns to God and surrenders to him in faith, God's spirit comes to indwell them. And we become his living temple in this world. And here's the beautiful mystery. It happens both at an individual level. We'll read this in Paul's words in a few moments that that our bodies individually become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is living in us. God's dwelling in us. We are reminded of who we are because of what he says about us, but in a very real way, he helps us help people realize who he is and who they are in his eyes and, and how to live for him. It's a remarkable thing. It happens to us individually. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it happens collectively. The body of Christ, the church, is spoken of as a new temple. Here's what Paul says, First Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 and 17, he writes these words to the Corinthians, Paul does. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. There, there's a way in which all followers of Jesus collectively form this great temple of God. And again, think about the temple. What does the temple do? It points us to who God is and who we are and how we're to live. And there's a sense that the church as a whole helps people see who God is, who they are, and how we are to live in this world for him. And it happens because individually we are also temples. If you turn just a page or two over to 1 Corinthians 6, there's a powerful passage about how living for sinful things, things opposed to the way of God, hurt us and harm us and are not what God desires for us. And as he writes to these Corinthian believers living in what has been called kind of like a, an ancient Las Vegas of sorts. Uh, it was like what happens in Corinth, stays in Corinth, kind of motto for the city. He has these words following this powerful um, just sermon on sexual morality. He says this, verses 19 and 20 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So there's a sense that collectively we're the temple, but it's because individually God's spirit dwells in us and even greater in us collectively, but individually he dwells in us. And you can even hear these whispers of identity in here. This is who you are. His spirit lives in you. This is who he is. This is how you're to live. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. So this idea of the temple that we see, even in Ezra, the importance of it, the exiles knowing if we're going to see who God is and live as his people and live for him, identity and purpose, we have to make the temple a priority. We see that very same priority echoed in Jesus And because of Jesus and through his grace echoed in his people who follow him and follow him in faith. The temple is a priority. It's a place of identity and purpose. And so a question that we have to wrestle with if we call ourselves followers of Jesus is, is the temple a priority to us? Collectively, individually. Do we see the importance of the collective body of believers the greater temple and how it continues to help us see who God is. It's a place when it's gathered in groups like this or in three or four around a table in a restaurant or in a living room or or talking to someone on a phone or in a FaceTime as as the church meets and and converses with each other, we remind people of who God is, what he has to say about us. We need the mutual encouragement and the, 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 the mutual accountability that comes through people to help us be the people he's made us to be and to live for his purposes in the world. We we need the temple. I cannot continue to follow God faithfully in 2022 without the help of other followers of Jesus. Because as you speak into my life, as you remind me of His promises, as, as you help hold me accountable in my own life, I am able to better serve His purposes within my identity as a child of God. And every single one of us needs that. And yet, here's a really scary thing that's happening in the church, in the United States of America is that people are beginning to diminish more and more the value of God's people, the temple, drawing together and what it does for them and for their faith. And I would just encourage you, if if worshiping with his people, if being around his people, if, if, if teaching one another his truth and, 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 and speaking to each other's lives is becoming less and less priority to you, I just wanna encourage you, you're gonna miss out on something incredible. You'll lose sight of your identity and who God is, and who he made you to be, and you lose sight of how to live for him, because we need the body of believers coming around us. There's power in the one another's in scripture that, that speak about life within the temple today, life within the body of Christ today. Where would we be without people who would comfort us and encourage us? Where would we be without people who would love us, people who would admonish us, rebuke us, speak truths into our lives? Where would we be, with, where would we be without people who would pray for us? And yet in our that culture, so many of us are choosing to abandon the very thing that helps us see truly who God is and who we are and how we're to live. If you want to make a comeback... Whether it's a comeback from sin, whether you, you're returning uh, to God, you're turning to him for the very first time. Or maybe you've wandered away from God and you've got caught up in things and choices and lifestyle decisions that you know don't honor him. Or maybe it's exile you're coming back from related to grief or tragedy. If you want to be able to make a comeback, you're going to need his people around you. Because they will encourage you and they will support you and they help you be reminded of who he is. Because there are things in life that beat us down and we lose sense of what our identity is and, and who we are. We get, we get, we get caught up in, in doubts and, and, and the difficulties and the disappointments and the discouragements and, and we need other people to surround us because they tell us who he is and who we are and, and with that support we're able to live on purpose for him. So we see in Ezra and Nehemiah this, this passion to see his church rebuilt. We should have that same passion today Because identity and purpose still matter. We need to be reminded of who God is and who we are because of who he is and how he wants us to live. So how do we ensure we do that? Well, that brings us to Nehemiah. Turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's uh, book has to do with primarily rebuilding the wall in the early chapters. We, We left off with Nehemiah last week when he heard the report of Jerusalem and its walls and ruins and uh, was distraught, he was weeping, he went to God in prayer. And following that time in prayer, we read a very simple statement. This is Nehemiah chapter one, uh, the end of verse 11. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. So we learned that Nehemiah had a position of prominence in King Artaxerxes, uh, cabinet if you will. Uh, He would test the wine, taste the wine, make sure that no one was poisoning the king So here's Nehemiah, who's wrestling. He's in this role as cupbearer, and this is what unfolds. Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through three. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So King Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah. He sees that he's distraught. He sees the pain and the difficulty on his face. Nehemiah tells us, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah says, I am so torn up because I still see and I still hear reports that the city where God wants to dwell among his people, the city where the temple has already been rebuilt and restored, the gates and walls lie in ruins. Why would that matter to Nehemiah? Why is he obsessed with walls and gates when the temple's already been rebuilt? Well, in that day, walls and gates were essential to the security and the protection of of the city. And so if Israel was going to reclaim this identity as God's people, who they are, who he is, how to live, Nehemiah knew that that temple needed to be protected or else it was vulnerable. It was vulnerable to people coming in and destroying, people coming in and corrupting. And so when he sees that there's nothing to protect the temple, he says, we've got to do something about this. We've got to protect the temple and and so he comes to the king and gives him a plan and we'll read about this in future weeks they come and they rebuild the wall of jerusalem this construction project though is not just about a wall it's about protecting the temple which should be this place of priority because of the identity it brings and how it helps people find their purpose and so when I look to you and I asked the question, I looked at myself in the mirror and I asked the question, how am I going to protect the temple of God today? How am I going to protect the church? How am I going to protect the body that he's given me, that his spirit dwells in? How am I going to be reminded of my purpose and, and my identity in him? Part of it comes by being intentional about protecting the temple. You can look at it at an individual level. Are we protecting our lives, our bodies, that God dwells within Are we intentional about protecting our minds, the influences that come in, the things that we're reading, what we're watching, what we're listening to that shape our worldview and they shape our sense of identity? Are we intentional about what's coming in? Are we protecting it? Do we need to be reminded of the words of Jesus that what comes out of you, it comes from the outflow of the heart. The mouth speaks from the outflow of the heart. Like What we absorb, what we soak in affects who we become. So are we protecting? or, or are we chosen not to stand guard over our hearts? The writer of the Proverbs says, "To guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. God tells us to love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and yet are we intentional about protecting our minds, our hearts? or do we just consume media without any thought to what we're watching? Do we go to the movies and have no care for the language or the nudity or the sex or the violence? Do we have no care when we read or do we have no care about the jokes that we tell and the conversations that we have? Do we not realize that, that we should be building up walls to protect, I'm not talking about sequestering and being away from the world completely that you don't even know people, you can't be salt and line. I'm not about being intentional about what has access to your mind and your heart and what shapes who you are and how you live and the choices that you make? How can we be intentional about building up walls to protect the temple, our individual bodies, our corporate bodies? One of those is just by being intentional with spiritual disciplines. You know, as we read his word, he influences what we believe about ourselves and about who he is and about how we're to live. When we spend time with him in prayer, we give him opportunities to speak to us about who he's made us to be and who we are and how we're to live when we serve alongside his people, when we, when we um, you know, fast, when we, when we come together and we give generously through our energy and through our financial resources, he has a way to, to shape and to protect our heart because we're aligning around him, being reminded of who he is and who we are and how we are to live. What are we doing to protect the corporate body? Are we men and women who will fight for unity? Are we men and women who are willing to lay aside our personal wants for the greater kingdom good as long as it doesn't compromise his purposes and his truth? Will we protect? Will we speak kindly of one another? Will we choose to refrain from gossip? Will we only tell the truth to one another gently and in love? What type of people will we be? Will we protect the temple? What's really interesting is that God has given us an incredible charge. He said it's through us that the world will know him. We get to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so how we live for him, how we worship this God, how we find our identity in him, and how we live for him, how we live as the temple affects how people receive the blessing of Abraham. And so we be men and women who find our identity and our purpose in him. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I know that even if you don't accept yet uh, the beliefs related to Christianity and Jesus, that you still wrestle with issues of identity and purpose. And if that's you, I would just encourage you to keep fighting for those answers. I want you to know that part of our mission as a church, part of our vision, is that we wanna be an outpost of hope for people looking for clarity around life's purpose. Uh, I line up in the same line with Christian Rager, It's only through the who of my life that I know who I am and how I am to live. And our hope is that you will meet that same who of your life and allow him to shape your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this old story. And God, I thank you that uh, you are a God who's living and active just as much today as you were then. And God, I pray that you would help us find our identity in you and take seriously what it means to be a part of the temple today, what it means to be saved and renewed and redeemed because of Jesus. And God, that we might fight uh, to see your temple continually enlarged and built up in this world, that people might come to know you. And God, if there's anyone here who's yet to respond to you, God, I pray that you would show them how real you are. And just as much as you cared for Adam and Eve in the garden, you care for them and you want a relationship with them, and that's found only in Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen.